Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Trusting the Models, we are joined by Brian K. Smith, Associate Dean for Research and the Honorable David S. Nelson Chair at Boston College's School of Education and Human Development, who shares his thoughts about artificial intelligence and its implications for teaching and learning. Welcome back to the Twice Over podcast, and we are so, so happy to have a special guest today. This podcast is part of our partnership with Conversations Magazine. It's an article in Conversations Magazine by our guest that brought us to Brian K. Smith today. So we're really, really happy to be talking to him. He is the Associate Dean for Research and the Honorable David S. Nelson Chair at Boston College's School of Education and Human Development. So Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, thank you, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. What brought your work to our attention is your piece from August, Asking the Right Questions Can Help AI Mean More. And so you've done a lot of research in artificial intelligence, and I'm just wondering um, if you can just start us maybe back at the beginning about kind of how, what got you interested in artificial intelligence and where that's taken you. As an undergraduate, I was a computer electrical engineering major at, at UCLA. And, and to be honest, I had actually started out as mechanical engineering. Okay. And, and at some point, I, there was some problem in a, in a, in a book. It was something about a bridge. And there were a lot of points on the bridge. And it said, find the force at point X on this bridge. And I, and I remember looking at that problem and I went, Look, if you took away half those points, I, I wouldn't be able to find the force at, but physics and I weren't getting it. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And so I went to the engineering office. This is no lie. I went up to the engineering office. I said, so what, let me, which engineering does not have to take this particular class with this bridge, with this force problem? There's chemical engineering. And I went, no, chemistry and I also are in the middle of this big, this bitter argument. So that's not going to work. And then she said, the other option is computer electrical. And I said, sure, I'll do that. Like, how hard could that be? So the reality is, it's actually really hard, but it was, you know, it was where I found my passion. But that's so great I, though. He's like, this problem doesn't interest me. Like this problem equally hard, super interesting. You know, the thing about computer science, certainly then and now is right. It's, it's, there's so much of it that's a design discipline, right? So that, you know, you kind of start out and they go, well, you've got to learn how to program so that you can actually talk to the computer and have the computer do things right. And so, so just that sense of design being able to sort of create something was always really interesting to me and i i think the other part certainly for the artificial intelligence part you know i took a class at one point and they said it was in one of the intro courses and they said we're going to have you program a game and uh, it was a game called mancala that's played with beads and, and you know it's an african game and they said we make a computer we're going to make a computer implementation you're going to make an an AI opponent that you can play against. Oh, that's fun. And so that was the first time I'd really sort of thought about like, what would it mean to do that? And, you know, I programmed it and I worked, you know, I, you know, I worked a lot and programmed a lot and sat in computer labs a lot, you know, it was just really rewarding at the end when the thing actually could play and you could set a different level of difficulty and, you know, eventually it, it, it could beat me and things like that. Right. So it was, um, that, that was my exposure to it. And that was the thing that got me really interested. So um. flash forward 2022, and we think about artificial intelligence in higher education. Steve yeah. and I have had a lot of conversations, especially during the pandemic about let's talk one slice of it, which is 
the so-called promise of proctoring our students in exams, right? So artificial intelligence watching our students, right? So you talk about artificial intelligence that supports learning, which seems very Jesuit positive. And then there's the artificial intelligence that kind of spies on our students and is checking up on them. And I'm wondering if you can talk about kind of how you think about the categories of how artificial intelligence works in higher education in 2022. If you can watch a student's behavior enough, can you detect things like, are they bored? Are they getting restless? And, you know, and you can sort of give that, that information to a teacher, to an instructor in ways that they might be able to do productive things, right? And, and that's sort of one kind, of, I think, that falls into that borderline surveillance where you really are sort of going like, you know, we have a lot of data and because we have that data, we can ask certain questions that we probably could never have asked before. Right. And, they, and they might provide useful information, right? And, and so there, there's that sense of things. There's also the sense I think I, I wrote about in the, the essay that was um, about this notion of efficiency, right? That was, it's, can we use these, these intel so-called intelligent machines to somehow make learning more efficient? or teaching more efficient, right? And so in that sense, right, that, I think that is kind of what the goal is, right? Uh, if we have systems, you know, again, maybe it is a proctor kind of thing. Like if you, if you can watch a room of students taking an online test and you detect some sort of weird behavior, you might be able to send a human over who can say, hey, you know, are you cheating? Are you doing something that looks right? right? And that's, that's far more, you know, efficient than trying to have humans do all of that themselves. And so that that technology is perfectly fine. I don't I don't have a problem with it. But you know, I guess again, coming from the Jesuit side of things, I think there's just so much more that we could start to think about in terms of you know how can any technology, whether it's you know an AI technology or anything, like you know how can it really support some of the things that that we think are really critical to to a whole to a whole person's development to you know a formative education approach. So, um, what? are some promising developments in AI as far as you're concerned that you feel like that feels to me actually also is student-centered or stu or positive for our students? I'm a huge fan of a, a system called Grammarly. And, and Grammarly is just, you know, it's a web-based thing. I guess it can also sit on your desktop and it's a writing assistant. And, and the technology for writing assistants are, have gotten increasingly sophisticated. I mean, we remember early spell checkers and things like that. And we, you know, some of us may remember uh, the Microsoft paperclip tried to be a writing assistant. It was an animated paperclip and you would start to write a letter and you would write enough of a letter that it would say, hi, I see you're trying to write a letter. Would you like me to help you write a letter? Now, clearly you've already at this point written enough of the letter that they can recognize. So you're already a pretty good letter writer. And then this paperclip would come up and could, you know, affirm that, right? It was like, that's not, that that's a, the wrong technology didn't work out well, but the, that technology has come a long way. And, and I use Grammarly now almost all the time as an assistant, right? It is my sort of partner in writing. So I'm putting things down, but it's helping me shape things. It's helping me find errors, helping me sort of, hey, have you thought about changing this to active voice, chasing this friend? I find it tremendously useful, right? And it's it's because it it is in some way, right, the partnership between me and that assistant. And I think that's part of it. It's not that I'm using it as and relying on it solely to make decisions, but some things I ignore, other things I go, yes, that's a great suggestion. And so and for me, it's about expression, right? It, yeah. it really helps me become more expressive with my writing. Now, now I'm thinking like, wait, I wrote that article and it's kind of like, no, it didn't, it didn't generate that by on its own. I actually did do something. <laughs> Maybe we should interview Grammarly for the podcast. I think so. Yeah. You know. So I wanted to ask, what do you mean when you say AI? 
So maybe AI, that's a feature of it. It's a kind of technology that you can collaborate with and not simply just use. Is that a feature of it? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, in this particular case, certainly what I think what I would talk about is either the intelligence or or that it's learned, you know, in its own sort of machine learning kind of way, right? It's it's learned through a lot of data and, and looking at lots of examples, what good writing might look like, quote unquote. So that it has that is is great, but it's not so much that is, you know, when I talk about it as being a partner, I mean, some some people might talk about, you know, IA, more like uh, intelligence amplification or intelligence augmentation, right? Where in fact, you're in partnership with this technology, you're able to do things that you normally couldn't do, right? You know, a good example, it's just a simple calculator is a great example, right? So there's no artificial intelligence or anything like that, but it's, it's, uh, it's certainly hard to imagine at this point, you know, if I had to compute square root by, you know, by hand, I think I learned it once, <laughs> you know, so I seem to remember some class where they said, you should learn how to do this. And we all went, okay, well, we'll learn it for the test. That's yeah, going to be the end of that, problem. right? Because then we're going to get our calculators back and we'll actually be able to do that, right? So, so that notion of being able to work with a technology to sort of, again, push yourself to do things, right? To amplify intelligence. So I'm driving back from Philadelphia this weekend Waze is telling me to go a, a way I don't normally go. And I'm like, okay, there have been times in the past where I was skeptical and ignored Waze and regretted it. Yeah. So this is like a whole alternative universe, right? Do I, what do I do here? And I find myself now trusting this technology, right? It knows better than me. Um, which yeah. Is, when you think of it in those terms, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it is because, you know, you could certainly ask people depending on the kinds of technology, you know, to what extent do they trust it? And, and I think one of the, the big debates or, or real concerns of people now in the artificial intelligence or data science fields, right, is this issue of trust. And, and how do we know that the machine models, how do we know we can trust? Them, right? I mean, this is a big concern, particularly around issues of, I mean, there's a lot of equity and diversity right that those those issues get a lot of, of of discussion by the media right but but there's a, they're important things to think about right i mean how do, okay. how do i know to trust ways or how do i know to trust you know that that face recognition algorithm isn't going to not only recognize but then classify me as <laughs> right ann and i in preparation for our talk with you today we're recalling the article in the new yorker about the, the reporter trying to make the hand automatic hand dryer turn on right and it wouldn't it didn't recognize his skin tone yeah right yeah. or if you think about the articles about the development of google maps where it would just send people these weird directions to aid in the development of its algorithm right yeah. so you're following google maps to get somewhere but google maps has its own agenda so it's going to send you this roundabout way Right, to, for the greater good, I guess. Right, right. Yes, right, because Google's gone. We need data, right, okay. to really make Google Maps or, way, or those, those kinds of systems, right? They're so data-driven. Yeah, so that's why your use of the word partnership is so interesting in this con context, right? I am a partner not only in the product of my use of the AI, but perhaps in the development of that AI, you know, all along. Right, without my individual input, just one little data point and all the mass of data points 
it is a collaboration of a sort, right? A partnership of a kind when you think about it in those terms. And I think that's helpful because part of the narrative around AI, is, as you mentioned, is this notion of trust and my essential passivity, right? I have no choice, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sort of dragooned into this relationship. You think about, you know, the question around, does my electric car save me or the group of pedestrians? Like, how right. does it make that choice? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, and it, it certainly varies by what the technology, the application area is. But I, I think, you know, as, as people start to use more of these technologies, I'm sure they'll start to ask more of these questions, you know, like what are the, what are the sort of productive, what are, the, what are these things good at doing that really help me, you know, I mean, sort of, amp, again, amplify intelligence or, or be more productive or be more expressive in the case that I, you know, and do that in ways that I feel part of that, that I'm contributing something, right? You know, there's a lot of discussions now about the, these sort of relatively recent AI systems that take text and they generate images, if not full video. And to imagine that as a, as a computer scientist, to me, that is, is an incredible achievement, and particularly a computer scientist who's spent a lot of time working. I mean, I've, I've done a lot with computer music. So I've always been interested in the intersection between arts and computation, right? And that, that's been a, another driver for me of... of a passion for me about being in this field. So to now see that these things are actually able to generate images or music, right? That is that is so convincing, right? That I'm kind of like, wow, that's actually like a really good version of a Samoyed winning the NBA finals. Who right. knew, right? That I mean, one it's interesting to think about in the in the context of art. Is it the product or the process of creating that piece of art that we're concerned with? Yeah. So to move it back just to the teaching and learning context, in terms of being in relationship with or partnership with the AI, what do we make of, say, an AI that indicates that I cheated on an exam? So it's my word, the student against this machine. How, how do we resolve that? Have you encountered this or thought about this at all? when a machine makes a diagnosis, right? So if that's a, a student diagnosis of cheating or whether that's a medical diagnosis, right? How do we know? And so, you know, to, there are certainly people who are trying to work on things like this, right? It's, it's how, how can the systems be explainable? To what extent can they, you know, can this black box of a machine learning system actually explain itself, right? Because at some point you want to know that, right? If, if, a, if, if I've certainly seen, you know, I've had my share of behavior cases where, Faculty says, hey, there's cheating. The student says, no, that's clearly not cheating. And then we have to discuss it, right? And there's, there is that back and forth, that explanation, each side going like, let me pre present evidence that would con convince you that I didn't cheat or did, you know, right? And, and currently machines, aren't, we're not capable of that. It, it is a question of how do we make sure that people can trust the models? Part of that trust is even before you explain it, or what are the data? Like, who did they train this thing on? to detect cheating where they only yeah. kids in this particular college you know where they all the kids at like the the, the most high-end school where they could get to the most low right you know so how do you diversify that the, the data sets that you're training on your article mentions boredom and the indicators of boredom but are those culture bound right does boredom look different in different cultural contexts yeah, now you have generators of essays, right? That are again fairly convincing. So I think, you know, you know, are students going to start to use some of those? Absolutely. So then you got to figure out like how how is it that, you know, I as an instructor, if I give an essay a you know, question, you know, am I, what am I reading? 
you know, right. and hopefully, hopefully, right students would do the, the the partner version and say, maybe I'm using this to help again enhance some of what I'm doing. But the idea, everything's it's mine to some extent. But it just turns out like a spell checker. Oh, it caught it helped me find some spelling errors. Oh, and it actually did. And it did say, hey, that weird sentence is like really long. Could you just try to, could you make that for mere mortals and not right? <laughs> like whatever you're right, you know? So that's, that's so interesting because there are so many different kinds of help that we get. And one of the things that we really want our students to do is help seeking behavior, right? We want them to seek help. We want them to go say they're writing a paper uh they're writing a computer program right we want them to go to the lab that has the tutors the peer tutors we want them to come to our office hours we want them to make use of the library or any kind of or something like grammarly or some other kind of program that will check it right and that is a kind of efficiency for us as faculty members right so before i'm going to look at your assignment did you read it over yourself? Did you show yeah. it to a peer? Did you seek help from someone else? Did you read the instructions, right? So I want you to come to me at the moment when my advice, my expert advice will be most useful to you. Yeah. But then there's the, I hired a person in a paper mill who's you know in a developing country and I paid them 50 bucks to write these three pages for me. That's not, yeah. that's not seeking help, that's cheating, right? actually there's quite a bit of nuance to that because when you think about say the college admissions scandal the gap between hiring a tutor to coach you on your essay to get into college and hiring a tutor to write your essay to get you into college is fairly narrow i would suggest in many cases there's a lot yeah. of so-called tutoring help that's pretty uh suspicious to me whatever kind of scaffold whether it's a technology technological scaffold or a human you know, to what extent are they sort of taking me as the learner and sort of pushing me just beyond what I can do, right? It's the Vygotskyan idea, this uh, the zone of proximal development, right? How, how do I sort of, I mean, and this is, a, it's, it's in designing a lot of this, this technology, particularly for education or things like that, right? It's, it's, I sort of want to be able to do that with the, the technology can get me to, it pushes me just enough so I can do that thing. Or that human tutor can help me just enough with my writing but I don't want to go too far, right? right? Where I go, well, you know what? Let me just write that for you, right? I mean, we've talked about it enough. So, you know, at this point, I can just actually do the, the thing. It'd be, you know, it would be more efficient. And then I, I spin it out. But does the, does the learner, him herself, actually get a benefit from that? I think in designing these kinds of technologies, particularly to support learning, whether it have AI in it or anything like that, right? That kind of idea of saying, how do I support the learner in some way so that they can start to do these things that they couldn't do. And in fact, sometimes, unlike many other computer systems, I might actually want to make something deliberately harder. If it was just a commercial app and I said, you know, I'd like you, hey, if it was Waze, you know, what I want to do with Waze is I want to make it as, as simple as possible, particularly because you're driving, right? So I don't really want a lot of complexity. But if I was asking students to use something similar to Waze and I said, well, I want to, well, you want to learn about you know, route planning or, or map reading or something like that. I might make it more complicated simply to challenge them because those are the things that I want them to learn, right? And That's so- That's such a great point because I notice sometimes, I live in New Jersey, which is 
really complicated driving and it's not where I grew up. And I realized that I'm so reliant on Google Maps that I don't know the towns near me. And so sometimes I'll use the technology to get me there and then I'll not use the technology to get me home so that I can try and get the map into my head because yeah. I want I want to know my towns so that if my phone is dead, I can get home. As you're talking, I'm thinking about assistive technology. What I'm hearing is a reconceptualization of that term that we all, we, we're all using assistive technology in a certain way. Your idea of, you know, the zone of proximal development. I, I can't quite do this on my own. It's not replacement technology. I'm not being replaced. I'm being assisted. Yeah. Does yeah. that does that framing make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th I think for me that's an ideal way to to think about technology, right? Is is that this stuff is trying to help us again do the things by doing that? In some ways, you sort of change definitions of what does it mean to even potentially to be intelligent. Even even in the educational case, I mean, I tend to think, how do we use technologies not as ways not to digitize what we already have. I've, I've seen a lot of great demonstrations of electronic books and things like that. And I go, hey, yeah, that's pretty cool. It's kind of like a book, but oh, it's electronic, you know, and sometimes there's, there's uh, things that are in there that you, again, that you couldn't do. Right. So, so ideas of like, wow, like I can highlight a passage and see like, Hey, there's a whole bunch of other people who highlighted this passage. What is that? So what is, what is interesting about this to a community of people that I might, that I'm not coming in contact with, but there's something interesting in it. Maybe I go out to Goodreads and I learn more about it, like, you know, and I get in a commuter. So there's, so there's you know, interesting things you can do there. Um, but in generally, I, I guess it, it, even in that case, it's not just taking the book and, and digitizing, but saying like, what are these new kinds of affordances that again, that being digital allows you to do and how does that transform what we do as people? So I wanted to just loop back to your, your idea about being in partnership or relationship with technology, because you may have had the experience of arguing on Twitter with a bot. I'm in this argument about some political <laughs> thing, and it turns out someone else will jump into the thread and say, yeah, that's a bot. <laughs> and Does I really, that really happen to you? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. It's very common. So some of my best friends are bots. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never gone toe to toe with a bot, to my knowledge. Oh yeah, to your knowledge. I hate to tell you, Anne, but but I'm a, I'm a bot. <laughs> right, so. What are your thoughts around the future of AI as it relates to teaching and learning? Is there something that you've been thinking about, or something on the horizon that you predict will have some impact on what it is that we do? The amount of data that people generate, that students generate. You know, and and just just thinking about it purely in terms of like a classroom situation for a minute, or or a school or a, or a higher ed. So the amount of stuff that's generated on the learning management system is, is is enormous, and we're only starting to kind of figure out what could you do with that, right? And and there are certainly good people in the world with great intentions who who are ethical researchers who I think are, I, and I believe that they will come up with really interesting things and solve interesting problems that aren't sort of the trivial kinds of, you know, our kids bored, potentially even going, why? And again, in partnership with someone trying to go like, and how do we help instructors push themselves to be able to teach in ways that they might not normally sort of entertain? Also just across platforms. I mean, I've, I've seen people now go on, you know, sure you have your LMS, your college LMS and you work here, 
but you're also taking class. Maybe you have some Coursera classes, or maybe you're over on this. Pla- maybe you've got a Khan Academy account. You've got. I think there's like some some really interesting things that as you start to look across, if it's if it's, if it's data kind of thing, right? And this isn't necessarily AI being, uh, you know, like sentient machines or anything like that. But I think it's a you know it's a very practical problem, right? Right? You have to have these machine learning algorithms to really help. There's no way that there's too much data to do it any other way. But you know, you could almost think about it if young people were on these platforms and they're on multiple, but you know, what could you start to see about their learning behaviors across, you know, in ways that we've just never been able to do, right? To to go like, oh, here's here's some kids and we're they're working on a platform in an after school setting, and then yeah, they happen to have done some stuff at a museum, and then if they've got their normal K twelve, right, and they're using the learning management system there, and now you can start to calibrate and kind of think about like, you know, who, who is this person as a learner? That I, I think there's some really powerful kinds of things there that again we haven't explored, but we simply simply don't know what we might see uh, with data at that scale. It feels to me like we're still kind of in this collection mode, right? And we've gathered all this stuff and the set is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I remember being in a conversation about student success management system, not just tracking students in Mm -hmm. one class, but tracking them across everything they're taking for the semester. And I was brought into the meeting as a faculty member and I said, well, what if we took the students who had ta- who had been tracked into a so-called remedial course and a, a class that often students don't wanna be asked to take and compared them against a cohort of students who'd resisted that recommendation, right? You're not ready for calculus. We want you to take advanced math again, even though you took it in high school. We judge that you're not ready and they do it. Do they end up doing better across four years or do the students who resist and say, you know what, I'm going to gut it out even though you judge me not ready? Like what's the behavior we want and what's the behavior that leads to more successful college students? That's, I think, where we're beginning to ask these questions, but I don't know that we have a clear answer. And it's also obvious to me that human beings being human beings, there's not a single answer to that question. That's, I'm glad you mentioned that example. I mean, I remember seeing when those systems like that started to be available and you could do like, look, hey, we can actually do some tracking and, and early warning systems and things like that, right? Which were tremendously useful. Well, and then at the end of the day, it was like, and who's going to give the advice to the student? Well, it's still us. It's doing something, but, and it helps us, but you know, it's the humans to come to save the day once again. (laughs) And, And I'm sure you've done this too. I've had those conversations with students and I've said, everything in your transcript suggests to me that you're a candidate for class X. And they say, but I want to take class Y for these seven reasons. And I say, you know what? You're correct. You're correct. Like, you know, after the conversation, I feel completely confident that their assessment, but the conversation really mattered. It surprises me in many ways that that artificial intelligence has come, is is at the state where it's at. I mean, there's no doubt that technically there are things that that we can do now that I'm like, wow. I mean, that used to be just an incredibly hard face recognition, you know, things like that, you know, object tracking, where now it's kind of like, eh, you know, just do that. You don't want to, you want to, you know, here's a can, here's a bottle, like, eh, you know, huh. that's, you know, that's a dog, that's a cat, you know, voice, voice recognition is become incredibly good. You know, I mean, there's points where it breaks down, but, you know, technically there's a lot that it's done, but it's still, 
those problems were, were the easy problems compared to all the social problems and the cultural problems and the issues of trust and the questions, right? So there's, there's still just a lot. And I, and I think, as you said, right, we're still in the very early stages of being able to go like, now we have the possibility of trying some experiments like this. And what are we going to learn from those, those things about, you know, like how do students, you know, and how much variation are we going to see from students if you if you ask and put them in the scenario that we were just talking about, right? Where it's that what some kids are going to go, oh, yeah, I will listen to exact whatever that machine recommends, that's probably the right choice. Others are going to go like, nah, I mean, I've, I've got this all figured out. You know? And so, you know, where is where is the right place for the technology to to sort of sit within the ways that, you know, that human lifestyle, right? That's that's a as, as always an interesting question. I mean, that to me is the meat of it. And it's so interesting that these technological assistance can get us 80% of the way or 90% of the way, right? But there's that last 10% that's like, oh, this isn't it. Now I need to have a conversation with the person and I need to find out for myself what the person needs and wants and what I recommend and whether, and give that person the freedom to say, I can say, here's my recommendation based on my own experiences, but you, you know, you still have the same choice. You know, do you enroll in the beginning class or the advanced class or whatever the choice is. I remember seeing one of the first self-driving cars. It was a van that Carnegie Mellon built. It was called NavLab. It was in the mid nineties. And they were able to take this van and essentially drive it from Pittsburgh to San Diego. I think it drove itself 90 some odd percent of the time. Right. And in, in the midnight, and I just think I'm like, wow, that's unbelievable. <laughs> like, where did it break down, right? And it was like, well, the the ten percent, basically, the failures were, you know, road road work, severe weather, right? And it was always on the highway, right? And so I think now, you know, we're kind of fast forward, and you know, it's still like, yeah, the, the possibility of self driving cars is that you know, it's it's far more advanced, it's far more that, but there's still that weird small percentage of cases that can do a lot of damage, right? <laughs> Right. And it's bad weather, you know, road construction and then basically humans, other humans with their cars. Right. Is essentially like one of the biggest problems. Right. Is we can't predict the things can't predict how humans really work. Right. I mean, so it's that's still a hard. Yeah. It's one of those things where you think like, wow, 1995 to now, like it's all it could be a completely solved problem. But it's still just there's still enough things that are hard that, you know, that, that that's why we don't part of why we don't see them on the road there's also lots of you know regulations and compliance all of those kinds of things that we have to think about too those are just as important as the technology it seems to me that what you and Ann are describing is like the judgment that emerges from experience right can you teach i guess is that what machine learning is is that this ai has a kind of experience and then can develop a kind of judgment is that what it's doing well, you know, that would be, and, and there are certainly people who think about this from the, you know, so, you know, the, the philosophical issues of what does it mean to know, I think, are, are really interesting around machines that we talk about. We ascribe intelligence to these, these machines, right? It, it, and it's certainly not, wait a minute, I should be careful. I would assert that it is not something that is human level intelligence. But again, it displays things that are often like really wow like it can you know that machine can actually do that that's surprising so you know so whether or not to say it has judgment or or even a sense of experience it's not i I think that's there there were there there's probably debates i'm sure there's debates about that there's always been debates about that in 
certainly when I was, you know, doing AI as a younger person, right? It was, what does it mean to be, is the machine actually intelligent? Because it can display things, right? We observe things and we can sort of ascribe sort of intelligent behavior to it. Is it actually intelligent? But um, I think what's really interesting about, you know, the, the sort of one part of this, why we're here now, the machine learning revolution is that we, again, have been able to collect data from the best sources possible. And that's us. So to the extent that that's a representation of experience, you know, our photographs of dogs and cats, we can give to a computer and say like, well, you've never seen these dogs and cats, but I'll show you. And now you can have, you know, a close representation of what it means to see dogs and cats, enough that you can finally go, yeah, it's a dog. And in fact, that's a German shepherd, right? That, that's, it's not just any old dog, but again, depending on how the, how it's trained. So it's it's an interesting way to, to think about it, right? Is, is, you know, are we basically giving helping machines with our data, is that a representation of experience? And is that, and that's the sort of grist of what these things learn. Some of these machine models, like, you know, let's say it's a, it's a model that's like trying to do, I don't know, look at, look at grades. It's an, it's an admissions system, right? And it's looking at, okay, I can look at your grades. I can look at transcripts. I can look at, and I, and I can essentially make a recommendation about whether the student should be considered by an enrollment management group, right? You know, that, that's, that's something that's here now. To say that it is it intelligent, it's really good. It knows a lot about enrollment, right? And it may, and and hopefully, it knows a lot about enrollment across a, a variety of different students from a variety of different backgrounds. With right, hopefully, there's a, the, the the data is actually very diverse. Otherwise, you get into problems. But you know, if you asked it anything else, I guess it would go like, well, I don't know anything else. I just know enrollment. I mean. But I don't know if that enrollment management system could say, you know, this kid, Brian, he's got something. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. He just got something. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and so we come back to judgment and experience, I guess, again. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're really good at, you know, like, you know, could the enrollment management do that thing where we, we know admissions people who do this. We do it as faculty who, when we see applications, we go like, I don't know that transcripts. I mean, it's not the best transcript, but that was the year. And this happened to this kid. And the, look at the essay. Like this kid, this kid is worth taking a chance on. This kid is going to be a success, right? That is not is is not something that's easily, to me, in my opinion, I don't think that that's something that we've. I saw an amazing TikTok my my older daughter sent me the other day, of a disabled woman in Texas talking to talking about how her vote had been rejected because of um, signature recognition software. And she has a physical disability that has gives her a tremor in her hand. She says, I'm physically incapable of having a consistent signature. I am me, I have a right to vote. She's clearly an incredibly intelligent person with a tremor in her hand. And yeah. it's, an, it's a really cool software that solves a lot of problems and fixes a lot of things really quickly and does one bad thing that absolutely disenfranchised this human being. Yeah. It was a fascinating anecdote because you think, wow, this thing that someone thought solves thousands of hours of clerical labor created a problem we never had before. So, you know, as, as designers, I think one of the things we have to do is think about there, there were certainly times where we would think, you know, how do you design for the sort of the mean, the median, right? What's what's in the middle, right? So the whole group, you know, I mean, and I'm sure that the thought was, how do we address the majority? I, I can't even imagine that they were going like, we, we want to push people out. But more so, if you're designing for the middle, you often forget 
that there are people who are perhaps on the edges who like this woman who would have this this, this particular tremor if you could somehow think about those edge cases those people who, who might seem out of the norm and you build for them right you can actually potentially do like incredible things for everyone yes people talk about this is design justice for instance right but but that notion of saying you know the people who perhaps are most marginalized actually what if what if you think about them more in your design work whether that's for AI and education or for you know a, a particular kind of voting software but but those people matter right and and the particular things that they bring to the world can really expand your designs for everybody right and there's some great examples uh, of, of things that have, have worked like this and um that's certainly one of the things that I've, I've been trying to work on myself in my own design practice and then with my students is it's kind of like you know how do how do we make sure that that woman is represented so we're coming to the end of our time and i want to ask you the question that i always ask our guests um which is can you tell us a little bit about a teacher who's been important in your own growth and development my, my mother was a teacher and she taught in uh, elementary school she's taught um in Los Angeles Unified School District for a number of years. And then we moved to the Bay Area and she worked. There she worked, she did a few years in juvenile hall, actually working with obviously kids who ended up in juvenile hall, right? So they they did some some pretty severe things. I'd never really considered going in education. That wasn't a route. And I think I ended up here because I, I watched her and I watched the way that she worked with her students. I watched the way that she would go buy her own supplies because that's what teachers do right and and would build solar system models and you know I got to help produce you know a lot of that stuff but she certainly inspired me and gave me a lot of the things like that were like they how do you what's what is a great thing for a, a a teacher to aspire to sure you teach them a lot of stuff you know they'll learn math and they'll learn a bunch of stuff but I remember these people you know young people coming up to her later on in life and going oh Miss Smith I remember you do you remember I was in your kindergarten class or something and she would always go the first off she would go oh I remember you yes I remember you and then the second part was like, you know, now I remember you and like, what are you doing now? Right. Oh, I got a job doing this. That's good. <laughs> right. And so I just saw a lot of kids went through her classroom and she made a real difference. And that to me, I mean, as many teachers as I've had, I mean, they've all been someone like that who's made it, you know, who's helped me move ahead. But I think the arc of my sort of career coming into education and going like, you know, how did I get, oh, you know what? Of course I got here. Right. I mean, I, I, I hung out with one of the greatest, so I, you know. I'm, I'm gonna give it to her. She, she'll get the nod today. Well, you hung out with one of the greatest and we got to hang out with you. So Brian, thank you so much for your time. We're really, thank really you. grateful to you for being a guest today, so. Oh, thank, thank you. you. It's been a lot of fun. You know, this is this is great stuff. You know, I, I mean, it's it really is, a, it's an incredible area. It's, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with all of this as it moves forward, but it's, a, it's an exciting time. Twice Over is now available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.